You may be seated. Well, that psalm should inspire you to give the gospel to your friends and your loved ones, because when Jesus returns, he will be returning as a conquering king. I would invite you to open up your Bibles to the epistle of James. We are continuing to work our way through the epistle of James, and this week we are at the end of chapter 4. We, our sermon text is James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, but what we're going to do is we're going to read from the top of the chapter, beginning at verse 1. That'll, again, set the context in our in our minds and hopefully remind us of uh, sermons in past weeks as we uh, look to this new portion of his word. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, your, that your passions are at war within you? You desire... And you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's come before the Lord and pray. Lord, we would come before you. Cannot, can you not hear we need your help this morning? 
We need your help in so many different ways, Lord, even as we stand before you as this assembly. And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon this place and give each one of us what we need. We pray for the preaching of your word. May it be clear and understandable. Lord, we pray for the hearing of the word. Lord, you know we have many distractions. We pray that you would help us to think on your word, to look at the words, to hear your word, to ask ourselves if it is so. We pray that you would use all of that discipleship you've given each one of us, that we can meditate upon your word and hear your voice. Lord, speak to us. We would ask that you would hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning by telling you the story of a Civil War general who was killed in battle in the Battle of Spotsylvania. This happened on May 9, 1964. Major General John Sedgwick of the Union Army was directing his men as they were advancing And uh, Confederate snipers were in place about a half mile from the general and his men, but they were close enough, and bullets were whistling by Sedgwick and his men, and his men were all uh, ducking for cover. And Sedgwick was irritated by this because, quite frankly, he thought his men were acting like babies, and so he stood up proudly, and he said, if you act this way for a single bullet, what will you do when they open fire on the lines? His words didn't uh, change anything, though his men were still visibly nervous as bullets whistled by, Uh, and some of Sedgwick's officers uh, suggested that it was unwise for them to continue uh, pressing forward and that they ought to take cover, but the general stood up defiantly in absence of cover, and he told his men, nonsense, why are you dodging like this? They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. But at that very moment, a bullet from a Confederate sniper hit Sedgwick just under the left cheek, and he fell down in front of his men, mortally wounded. wounded. The general's behavior was foolish. He was arrogant. He was presumptuous. And in our passage, James warns against being presumptuous, not with an opposing army, army, but someone far more to be feared, God Almighty. James is addressing the boastful pride of some in his congregations. You can see that in verse 16. He warns the church not to be presumptuous, and tells his people to make plans, to make plans, but understand that God may change those plans. This passage is about your plans, and it's about the Lord's will. How should you tread in life? How should you proceed? And how should you react to God's unfolding Providence, these are questions that we are going to seek to answer 
as we examine this text. We're going to begin with our first heading, which is humbly acknowledge your limitations. Humbly acknowledge your limitations. James begins in verse 13 by saying, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Who is James addressing? Well, he seems to be addressing merchants who are in the church. You can see that he's addressing those who are seeking to trade and to make a profit. And yet the text applies something beyond wealthy merchants. James refers to our plans of today and tomorrow and regarding such and such. This, this text applies to the kinds of plans that each one of us make. But there's a problem with the plans that are being made here in the text, isn't there? That's clear from verses 15 and 16. Is it sinful to plan things out? To plan out your future? Of course not. The Bible commends the ant. The Bible commends the ant for gathering food in the summer to guarantee its supply in the winter. And we're supposed to learn from that proverb. Scripture calls believers to be hard workers. We are supposed to think about our futures. And the Bible commends men like Moses and Joshua for making plans to lead Israel. No, the problem isn't with planning your life, your, your, your future. The problem is with planning your life, your future, without any thought of God or his plans or his sovereignty. The problem is with living your life as if this world is all there is, living without any serious reference to God's will for your life, living as practical atheists. In verse 13, James highlights a certain arrogance in the kind of thinking that disregards God and the complexity and uncertainty of this life. You'll notice that these businessmen in verse 13 aren't concerned about traveling to a foreign city in a time where it was very unsafe to travel. They have zero doubt they will succeed. You see, they're self-confident to a fault. They say, we will go. We will stay a year. We will buy at a good price, and we will sell. We will make a profit. James says this kind of thinking, this kind of speech, this kind of boasting is evil. Scripture confirms that it's God who raises up and who lowers people. Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years learning this the hard way. He walked in his palace full of pride, and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And what did God do? He showed Nebuchadnezzar who was responsible for his success, who was in control. Scripture says that God 
struck Nebuchadnezzar with madness for seven years so that he would know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The Bible says that power is in God's hands. And we can see that in the life of people like Joseph, whom he raised from a slave to the Lord of the land. Or David, who he raised from a common shepherd boy to be a king. Psalm 84.11 says that it's the Lord who bestows favor and honor. This is why in verse 10, James said, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't strut around. Don't strut around boasting of how you're going to take this world by storm. Don't walk around with an arrogant self and self-confident attitude as if you're going to conquer this world and no one can stop you. In verse 14, James says, You talk like this, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your limitations. Believers should demonstrate a humble reliance upon God for his direction and his blessing on the plans that they pursue. Christians are to demonstrate humility and seek God's will in prayer. They should follow the example of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knelt before the Father in heaven. He demonstrated humility and reverence, and he prayed. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. When it comes to making plans, believers should make them with humility. They should seek the Lord's will in prayer, and they should search for the Lord's counsel in Scripture. Psalm 119 verse 24 says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Christians should search the scripture to find the Lord's will, and they should also seek the counsel of godly brothers and sisters. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Don't be presumptuous. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know how God's providence is going to unfold. Make your plans with humility, acknowledging your limitations and seeking the Lord's blessing and counsel and redeem the time. James says, don't be presumptuous with your time because it is short. Humbly acknowledge your fertility. That's our second heading. Humbly acknowledge your fertility. We are fragile. Life is fragile. James says that we ought to walk with humility because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And we can understand that. We've heard, we've all heard stories about people who started businesses At the end of 2019, they had no idea that a pandemic was just around the corner. 
And even now, we are experiencing inflation, right? Interest rates are rising like crazy. We're unsure of where the economy will be in the next couple years. If, if we're being honest, we, we have trouble even predicting next week's weather. A little humility is in order. The future isn't unsure to God, but it is unsure to us. And it's not just things like the, the economy that's unsure to us. If you're enjoying health, you don't know how long that's going to last. And none of us know how many days we have left to live. Life is fragile. In verse 14, James said, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And he continues, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What's he saying? He's saying life is short. Life is like a mist. Sometimes when you wake up in the morning and you look out the window, you can see fog around uh, your house. I love when I see that. But you know one thing for sure, it's not going to last. Because as soon as the sun rises, it'll all just pass away. Mist is a prevalent metaphor in the Old Testament. It pictures the brevity of life. The Bible draws many pictures from nature To drive home that point, it says that our lives are like grass. We're here today and gone tomorrow. It says that our lives are like smoke or a shadow. We see them, but then they're gone quickly. But that's not how it was supposed to be. God created this world good. We were designed with a purpose to live in fellowship with God and to serve him. We weren't designed to die. Death and disease came into this world because of Adam's sin. Scripture says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. We suffer and we die because of sin. That's why Christ came into this world to save us from sin and death and hell. He came to restore our relationship with God. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the door and anyone who enters by me will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. From our earliest days in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, the church, this church, was an abolitionist church. During slavery, some of our spiritual forefathers would travel to the south and purchase slaves and bring them north and set them free. Jesus did something similar for you and me. He came down and he paid for us. He purchased us with his blood that we might be free 
from sin and death. Acts 20.28 says that Jesus obtained us with his blood. And 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20 says, Christians, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. It's with this kind of understanding that the Apostle Paul told the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Paul understood that he had been purchased, that his life belonged to Christ. Believer, you belong to Christ. And the truth of that ought to be reflected in the way you talk and in the plans you make. Life is short. How are you investing your time, your resources? In Luke 12, Jesus said, Take care. And be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told the parable. Jesus said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, "What, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God called the man in this parable a fool. He was foolish because life is short. The man was foolish because he didn't reckon with the fragility of life and because he put his investments in the temporal rather than the eternal A sensible person will choose what is best for the long run. Jesus said to us all, be rich in God. Invest in your heavenly portfolio. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James says, don't be presumptuous with your time because it is short. And as he continues, he says that Christians ought to align themselves with God's will, that you should humbly acknowledge your obligations. That's our third heading. Humbly acknowledge your obligations. And you can see that right away in verse 15. James says, instead instead of living your life as if this world is all there is, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James says, you ought to acknowledge God. And notice that he's 
pointing to our speech again. James is always pointing to our speech in this letter. And that is because our speech discloses the attitudes of our hearts. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongue is like a speaker that broadcasts the heart. This is about more than a believer needing to verbalize certain words. It's about the attitude of the heart. Believers ought to have an attitude of humility before God that becomes their fixed positions, the fixed positions of their hearts in all of their planning. In John chapter 4, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus lived to do God's will. It was life to him. It was the place where he found spiritual sustenance, and it's where you will find it as well. God provides spiritual food for the soul when your will is surrendered to him. How can you know the Lord's will? The Lord's will is revealed in the scriptures. And as you search them, you'll find that it's God's revealed will that you yield yourself to him and that you be spirit-filled and that you live a sanctified and holy life, that you'd keep his commandments and that you would love one another. His will is that believers rejoice and praise and give him thanks. But as you search the, the scriptures, you'll discover that the Lord's will doesn't directly address every topic. For instance, what if you're offered a job making 20000 more in another state? Will the Bible tell you if you are supposed to take that job offer? Well, not directly, but it may very well give you the answer indirectly. If you came to me and you asked my counsel about taking a job like this, you're going to be making a lot more, but you're going to be moving to another state. What's one of the questions I'm going to ask you? Where are you going to go to church You should see the surprised looks on faces when you ask a question like that. You get, I don't know. You see, that's the exact kind of thinking that James is addressing here. Making plans based on the flesh without regard to the spirit. What about your spiritual welfare? Are there any solid churches in the city where you're thinking of moving to? If not, answering your question is going to be easy. Do you think it would be God's will to make a decision that's detrimental to you and your family's spiritual well-being? Absolutely not. Scripture says you're not to forsake the assembly of the saints from week to week. It says that you're supposed to be submitted to elders. 
that you're to be partaking in the Lord's Supper. It says that you're to be sitting under the preached word and that you're to be able to exercise discernment about what you're hearing. You're to belong to a solid Bible-believing church where the gospel is preached. If you're unable to do these things in the city where you've received the job offer, God clearly wouldn't want you to take it. Another thing to realize is that sometimes you might make plans that are in line with God's revealed will, but he may still tell you not to go forward simply by closing the door on your plans. When that's the case, it's important to yield and to let those plans go. We see uh, an example of this in Acts 16, when God redirects the mission plans of Paul and Silas and Timothy. They had plans to continue to advance the gospel in Asia Minor, but God wanted them to go to Macedonia. We're not told exactly how God closed the door on their plans. We're simply told that they tried to proceed with their plans and that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. The Lord should be at the forefront. The Lord should be at the forefront of your planning and your decision-making. And you should remain willing for God's will to change your plans. Be willing to let God's will change your plans. Sadly, this approach was not the case for some in the churches that James was overseeing. They were proud and arrogant, and the Lord's will was far from their thinking, and their tongues revealed the state's of their heart. James addresses them in verse 16. He writes, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. He says, all such boasting is evil. They were boasting about their arrogance as though their independence, as though their self-determination is itself a matter worthy of pride. James says, all such boasting is evil. And in verse 17, James continues, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. He is talking about people who know the will of God, but choose to disobey. This behavior expresses more pride because the disobedience conveys a heart that says, I know what you want from me, God, but I know better. James is talking about sins of omission. When you know what God has commanded in his word, but you fail to do it. We all fail here. We're all guilty of failing to keep God's commands. We fail in our thoughts and in our desires. We fail in our words and in our speech. And we fail in the things that we do and in the things that we neglect to do. We fail to be doers of the word 
In chapter 2, verse 10, James wrote, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This is why you desperately need Christ. Jesus came to live perfectly consistent with the will of God because he knew that you couldn't do it. He knew that I couldn't do it. He came to live for you. He came to die for you so that in him you might be forgiven and counted righteous before God. You remember Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The work that Jesus was referring to is your salvation, your redemption, and he secured it on the cross. In this text, James wants you to follow Christ's example. He wants you to crave God's will and to find strength by walking humbly in it. James warns the church not to be presumptuous, to reject the delusion that sees God as irrelevant in this life. No, God should be at the forefront of all your thinking and planning. He is intimately involved in every aspect of life here on earth. James says not to be presumptuous because you don't know what the future holds, and life is very short. And he says that Christians ought to carefully align themselves with God's will. You should humbly acknowledge your limitations, your frailty, and your obligations. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this life is filled with twists and turns. We, we make plans and, and, we, and, we, and we invest and we, and we move forward asking uh, to be in your will and thinking, Lord, that we are going forward in your will only to find ourselves in what looks like a completely different direction months or maybe years later lord this life is complex and we don't know the future oh how we need to know your will lord we would ask that you would give us humble hearts humble hearts that would seek your will in prayer humble hearts that would search your scriptures looking for answers and direction. Humble hearts that would seek the counsel of our brothers and sisters and spiritual fathers and mothers, that we would, that we would hear their counsel well. Lord, would you give us humble hearts? Lord, help us to know what you would have us to do. What are our next steps, Lord? What would you have from us? How should we serve you? Where are we to go? What are we to do? Lord, hear the cries of our hearts and show us, we pray. Help us that we would know your will and that we would plan with you at the forefront of all of our thinking. Lord, guard our hearts. 
change our hearts. Lord, help us, we would ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.